We learned that in Luke, uh, in his, his Christmas story, the big question was, who is Lord? Because the Romans would say Caesar is Lord, and the Christians would say Jesus is Lord, and they couldn't both be right. So somebody was lying. 2,000 years later, we look back, who was lying? Who was Lord and who wasn't? Jesus. Whose birthday are we celebrating? It's not Caesar's. Even though Caesar uh, instituted the 12 days of Advent to uh, celebrate his own birthday, we don't even talk about Caesar's birthday anymore. We talk about Jesus' birthday. So we know that he won. Today, we're going to be looking at Matthew's Christmas story. And Matthew looks at it from a little different perspective. His big question is, who is king? And this is a big deal. Who your king is? Who do you worship? That's the big question we'll come back to over and over to today. Who do you worship? We all have something that we serve. And whatever it is that you serve, that's what you're worshiping with your life. And if you really want to know what you're worshiping, if you have children, ask your kids. They know who your God is. If you have loved ones that will tell you the truth, ask them. They know who your God is as well. And this is a big deal because Jesus' birth ushered in a new type of kingdom. See, everybody that was alive then that was looking for this Messiah to come from God, they assumed that God's Messiah would come and they would have the biggest, the baddest army and they would destroy all the enemies of God and then the people of God would live in peace. And that's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus, but not at the first coming. The first time Jesus came, He came to usher in a different kind of kingdom. And we know that because when He was being questioned by Pilate, right before He was going to be crucified, Pilate asked him some questions, and here's what Jesus says in John 18:36: My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is bigger than the earthly kingdom that we can see. He came to conquer not just earth, but He came to conquer those worlds we can't see. You see, in an earthly kingdom, what they try to do is they try to rule from the outside in. They put pressure on you. But Jesus' spiritual kingdom, He came to rule from the inside out. So I want you just to stop before we sing any more songs today, before we move forward in the, in the worship service. I want everybody to stop and be still and contemplate this question. Who do you worship? Who is it that you are serving? Because if you were looking in the dictionary um, for something, uh, for the term drive, to drive something means to guide, control, direct it. Whatever is guiding or controlling or directing your life, that's what you're serving. That's what you're worshiping. Who are you worshiping today? Just close your eyes and let's just have a time of silence to look at our own lives deep inside our souls. Who am I worshiping today? The birth of Jesus is not just a story about an unwed teen mother. The, the birth of Jesus reminds us that things aren't always as they seem. Um, so that's what we've been asking. We've been asking how, how were things at the time of Jesus' birth. And last week we looked at, at Caesar. And we talked about Caesar ruled the world from Britain to India. We got that picture? Britain to India. And, and the whole question is, how in the world do you rule something that big if it takes you nine months to go the 3,000 miles from one end of your kingdom to another. How do you do that? Well, what they did was, historians told us, that they chose kings. There we go. How do you rule all of that if it takes you nine months to get around it? Well, you would choose a king in different areas. Um, that's the problem with conquering the world is how do you keep it under control? So 
One historian told us that the Romans had an old and long-standing principle of Roman policy to employ kings among the instruments of servitude. That's what Tacitus told us. So you'd some, find some dude and you'd say, okay, follow our instructions and you can be king. Don't and you die. So those are your choices. And so what they did was they found somebody in, in Israel named Herod. Because there's always somebody that, that you can find who's, who's willing to do anything for power and fame and riches. And Herod was one of those guys. Here's a picture of Herod. Somebody said he looked like Santa Claus. I don't see it, but maybe, maybe you see it there. Um, what would happen was Caesar chose Herod to rule as king. And uh, he was the puppet king of, of Rome. And so he would do everything he could to appease the Roman Empire. What was Herod like? Well, historians tell us. Look at this quote. Herod besieged Jerusalem in 37 B.C. with a huge army of 11 battalions of infantry and 6,000 cavalry. When the troops poured in, a scene of wholesale massacre ensued. For the Jews of Herod's army were determined to leave none of their opponents alive. Masses were butchered in the alleys, crowded together in houses. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Herod was half Jew, half Edomite. And so it's, it's really interesting to me when it says that the Jews of Herod's army were determined that nobody else was going to survive when they came into Jerusalem. The reason is, if you were close to, to Herod, Herod would take care of you. All of your needs would be supplied because Herod would just kill people or tax people more or whatever. So the elites have all of this power under Herod. The poor people have nothing. And we're going to see more of that in just a little bit. So it sounds like Herod is just the kind of man Caesar would get along with. He spent the rest of his life, the rest of his reign as king, slaughtering Jews and honoring Caesar. And when I say honoring Caesar, I mean this guy, Herod, was the biggest suck up in the history of the world. Because look what another historian said. In short, Josephus said this. In short, one can mention no suitable spot in the realm which he left destitute of some mark of homage to Caesar. That means you're going to walk around the countryside and you're going to see statues. You're going to see temples. You're going to see all kinds of things built um, cities even built to Caesar because Caesar said he was Lord. He said he was um, God and and Herod wanted to keep his power. So he built all of these things to Herod. Uh, I mean, Herod did this for Caesar. And in a land where the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods except me. God said this to the Jews. And this is the land and, that he gave to them, the promised land. And the second commandment is you shall not worship anything made by human hands. What is Herod doing? He's running around building statues and altars and cities to Caesar. So everywhere people went, they saw reminders that they were under the, the political rule of Rome. And the reminders were given to them by the king set up, King Herod. What do you think the Jews thought about King Herod? They didn't like him and they didn't like him a lot. Now, on top of that, there was this legend circulating around that David, if you know anything about Old Testament, David was the greatest king ever of, of the the Jews in the Old Testament times. He is the one who consolidated all the kingdom because they had this split up kingdom. All the tribes were split up and they were, were uh, they were serving different kings. David is the one who comes together, brings um, the kingdom together. And you remember, David's the one who killed Goliath. And, and he's also the one who rid um, the, the Israelites of the Philistines, the hated Philistines. He's the one that destroyed their power. Now, before he came to power, before David came to power, King Saul got jealous of David because David's the one who killed Goliath and David was just a child. And when the when the ladies came back into Jerusalem singing their songs about the, the war they just fought against the Philistines, they would sing. Saul has killed his thousands. 
But David has killed his ten thousands. So Saul, being the humble, great king he was, got jealous of David and tried to kill him. David finds out about it and runs for his life. So this is obviously before he becomes this great king. He runs around and he's hiding. Well, okay, here's where the legend comes in. The legend says that David, at one point in his running around phase, goes to this area called Masada. Here's a picture of it. You see it on the screen. So you're out in this wilderness, and if you wanted to hide in a cave, this would be a pretty good place, right? Because you could see people from all around trying to come get you. It takes a great deal of time to get up there. So the legend says David crawled up in one of these caves to hide from King Saul when he was running from him. Now, here's where Herod comes in. Herod says if the greatest king ever of the Jewish nation hid in fear for his life on top of this mountain called Masada, I will live in luxury there. So you know what he did? He built a three-story palace on top of it. The ruins are over here on the left side of the screen when you're looking at it. The right side is, um, is a, an artist's rendering of what this looked like. And this is just, this guy was unbelievable. Now, um, he wants to live in luxury there. And so what he does, he builds his palace and he does stuff like brings marble in. Here's another picture. Look at this design. If you could get close enough to see that, that's, that's not painted that is inlaid design in the marble. Two thousand years ago, he had this imported, taken up on the top of this mountain in the wilderness so that he could live in luxury. Um, here's somebody says, here's another picture. He had hot and cold baths installed. And that's that's the ruins of the hot and cold baths that you see there on top of Masada. And then on the very top where it had not rained in 700 years at the swimming pool. That Herod had built on the top of Masada. Now, think about this. If it hadn't rained there in 700 years, you are in the desert, in the wilderness, thinking people say, how in the world do you fill a swimming pool? How do you have hot and cold baths with fresh water? Well, if you know anything about the the, uh, landscape in Israel, Jerusalem is 17 miles away and Jerusalem is up on top of a hill. Now, I've been on tops of hills before, and generally, you know, if it rains on a hill, what happens to the water? It runs downhill. Where does it run to? The lowest spot. So you've got these cracks and these crevices that that come down from Jerusalem on all sides. I mean, that's just what happens. Twice I've been in a rainstorm on a mountain, and that's what happens, because gravity takes over. So if you are 17 miles away, there's no fresh water, it's not rained for 700 years, what do you do? If you're Herod, you rebuild the wilderness. You redirect all of the cracks and crevices and valleys so that the water comes all the way to the base of Masada, 17 miles away. And uh, then you got to have some place to collect it because then you want your peasants to carry it up on top of the mountain. So he builds these huge, enormous cisterns at the bottom of Masada. And it is estimated that in one rainfall that Herod could have enough water for 10,000 people for 10 years. That's a big hole in the ground. Everything Herod did was massively huge. He figured out how to do stuff 2000 years ago. He was so far above and beyond some of our capabilities even today. And I just want you to get an understanding of this. He even figured out a system of of preserving food. They broke into one of his storage rooms and found some dates and figs that have been preserved for 2000 years. I don't know how he did it, but the the archaeologists went and and ate some and then they went to Herod's bathroom. No, not really. They some of you are going to get that later. 
they lived because this guy was so far advanced technologically from anything that we had done. Now, if you're a human king, you want to build stuff so big, so large that everybody looks at you and says, you are the greatest king ever. You're the one that that um, that has exceeded anyone else. So you build these marvelous palaces and places. Nobody can build anything. And you think it's a really great thing to do. Now, in that line of thinking and everything that Herod does is huge. He decides that he wants to build a seaport um, and he's going to call it Caesarea, named for Caesar. I'm telling you, this dude was a suck up. He had a big problem, though, where he wanted to build this seaport. It was swampland, complete swampland. So what do you do if you want to build the majestic state of the art Greek city in swampland? If you're Herod, you drain the swampland. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And then he builds this incredible city there. Um, and this is remarkable because the largest harbor in the world at this time was 60 acres. Now, I want you to look at this picture. This is Caesarea. So if you're Herod and the largest um, uh, seaport in the world is the harbor is 60 acres, what do you do? You build one 520 acres. Look at the wall that you see there out into the ocean. He figured out, he imports concrete from Italy, figures out a way to, to pour concrete 80 feet below the surface of the ocean and 100 feet wide so that he can have the biggest and the baddest seaport in the world. And everyone can say what a great king he is. Now, again, if you look over here on the side, you can see the palace. He builds this palace and he sticks it out over the ocean and he wants to have a, a swimming pool there. And but he doesn't like salt water. So he needs fresh water and he's living in a swamp. So what do you do? The nearest source of water was 19 miles away. So if you're Herod, you build an aqueduct. Here's a picture of the aqueduct. It's still standing today. And the remarkable thing was every every um, meter, it would fall one centimeter for the entire 19 miles. And to this day, it's less than one centimeter off. The guy was an archaeological uh, or an engineering genius for that time of day in that time period of life. And I don't know if you've ever built anything. I got to build a driveway that's 92 feet long. And I can't imagine it's going to be more than one centimeter off after 92 feet. He did it over 19 miles. Everything he did was huge. Uh, one historian said that he, that he built the stadium. And you'll see a picture here. And if you look over on the right side, you'll see the steps. See these steps here? They, they discovered one stadium and they said, oh, that's not that big. But then they started digging this. To, to this day, they've uncovered 350,000 seats. They think that it was originally 500,000 seats in, in the stadium uh, and that it, it was 1.3 miles was one lap around the inside of the stadium. Now, 2,000 years ago, this dude is building unbelievable stuff. And if you read about it, he funded the Olympic Games. He built cities and all. I mean, he built things in all these Greek cities all over the world. People were trying to get Herod to uh, to build things. It is estimated that that at his peak, he had five hundred thousand people on his payroll. And people are are estimating now that he is the richest man to ever live, not just of his time period to ever live. Unbelievable fame, unbelievable fortune. And one other thing that I have to just share with you before we move on is uh, one time he decides, he's happy to might half Jewish, he decides that he wants to build a city halfway between Jerusalem and his home country of Edom. And so he just kind of draws a line on the map halfway across there, and he decides he wants to build a palace there. 
and he wants it to be on top of a mountain. The problem is no mountain exists there. So what do you do if you're Herod? You make a mountain. Here's a picture of it. See all the foothills out there? You make a mountain. You bring it in. You build it up. You build this incredible palace. This was a fortress. And by the way, this was a place he hid when the Jews finally had enough of him and, and were chasing him to kill him. He goes and hides in there. How do you build a mountain? I don't know. Maybe one's missing somewhere. You just bring it out and you build it if you're Herod. I mean, this guy was unbelievable. The things that he did. And um, right now, I just, I just want to... I just want to pause and I want you to think, is bigger always better? I mean, in, in Herod's idea, it was. Um, if we were keeping score at home, okay, you live back in this time. And you're just watching what's going on in the political system in your, in your country. Who do you think's winning the game? Herod or Jesus? Herod, yeah. Shoot out because bigger is always better. Um, and, you know, I heard this on, on UFC and I thought this applied well here. You know, um, I heard a guy say, in my kingdom, there will be much blingdom. That described King Herod. His kingdom was filled with blingdom and everybody knew it. One time he was coming back to Caesarea and he was on this boat and he looks up at Caesarea and he says, it's not beautiful enough from the sea. So I'm going to I'm going to make everyone import marble and cover the whole city in marble so it, so it'll be more beautiful from the sea. This guy was unbelievable in the things that he did. And and I just want to say that we never get caught up in that, do we? We don't get caught up in blingdom. We that doesn't affect us, does it? Well, um I don't know if you've seen the new Cowboys stadium that's going to be built. One of, one of Jerry Jones's claim to fame is that, um, this is gonna have, well, let me just tell you some facts about this stadium. The end zones, you see the end zones there, they will, those are retractable walls. 120 feet wide, or 180 feet wide, 120 feet high, making it the tallest movable glass walls in the world. Um, the roof, you can kind of see it there. He's designed it with a retractable roof so that it's still, when it's open, it still looks like the Texas Stadium of today. So that, you know, God can watch America's team, God's team, that type of deal. That's what they say. This, this roof will be the longest clear span structure in the world. The arches are more than twice the length of the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. Now, it's got this domed roof, 600, 660,000 square feet. The stadium will be the largest domed structure in the world. The Hall of Fame uh, level suites will be 20 rows from the field, making them the closest in the NFL. So the closest suites in the NFL to the to this uh, field. Now, the interesting thing is capacity, absolute standing room only. You know, generally it's going to be 80,000, but it can go up to 100,000. How big was Herod Stadium? 500,000. Yeah, Jerry Jones, take that. 2,000 years ago, Herod outdid you. Total square footage, 2.3 million square feet. Now, listen to this. The entire Statue of Liberty and its base could fit into the stadium and the roof be closed. The stadium is also the world's largest column-free room. I like this. The American Airlines Center in Dallas could fit entirely in the new stadium at field level. We're talking massive structure. But that's not all. I don't know if you've seen these, these massive 
big screen, uh, high definition televisions that are the rage nowadays. If you've watched the University of Texas, they have something called the Godzillatron because it's the largest stadium uh, television in the world. Now, Tokyo actually has one bigger. Texas is seven thousand three hundred and seventy square feet. If you ever seen it, it's basically the whole end zone. Great, huge television. Tokyo has uh, the, the, the next largest one at 8,066 square feet. Mr. Jones' claim to fame is that his is going to be 9,000 square feet. All right, the biggest one's 8,000. If you're going to go for the blingdom, then you, then you make this uh, 9,000 square feet. But not just one of them. We're going to have two. See, there's one on this side, there's one on the other side, and then the little midget one's on the end. They're going to be some on the outside, too. So that if you can't even make it in the game, you can drive up in the parking lot and see these big honking televisions. In my kingdom, there shall be blingdom. So don't tell me we don't do that stuff now. We get caught up in somebody else's life is better than mine. And we get caught up in comparing um, things to uh, other people's lives to ours. And so that's that's what we've got to avoid and we've got to get rid of. Now, I said earlier, your driving force in your life is what you worship. It's what controls you. And the Bible tells us that if anything or anyone other than God is driving our life, then we are worshiping idols. And I think it'd be safe to say that that Mr. Jones is worshiping his idol. And he'll have about 80 to 100,000 people on any weekend worshiping the Cowboys with him. I love the Cowboys, but uh, Cowboys don't do a whole lot for me, even when they win. Don't do a lot for me when they lose. They don't do a lot for me when they win because it really doesn't affect my life. Mr. Jones is not going to give me anything. He's not going to help new life out any. Now, this is big because here's the deal. Here's the next thing on your listening guide. Your king, who you worship, your king will determine your legacy in life. Now, when Texas Stadium was built, it was one of the greatest structures in the world, right? What are they going to do with it when the Cowboys move out? Stadiums don't last, do they? See, Astrodome. Nobody's hanging out there anymore. They got big new stadiums. Do you think this stadium will last forever, no matter how well it's built? No. Who was Herod's king? He built all of this stuff. Who was his king? Well, technically Caesar, but yeah, it was Herod. What kind of legacy did Herod leave? I mean, we looked at all of his stuff. Is anything still standing besides the aqueduct? We were looking at ruins. Now, let's think about his legacy with his family. He had 11 wives and 43 kids. And I just got to tell you about this guy. You got to understand if you're really going to understand the Christmas story. You got to understand Herod. He became suspicious of one of his wives. So he goes on a trip and he tells one of his assistants, "Um, if I die on my trip, I want you to execute my wife. So the assistant tells the wife, Herod doesn't die on his trip. He comes back and the wife is a little distant. As you can imagine, she would be. So Herod kills her anyway. Going to act like that around me? I'll kill you. He became suspicious of one of his sons. This is kind of a recurrent theme. He becomes suspicious. He becomes suspicious of one of his sons. And so he thinks he's going to try to take over the kingdom. So he has him drowned in one of those family pools. By the way, I believe it's on Masada. I didn't tell you about that. Not on Masada, on Herodian, the one where he built the mountain where there was no mountain. He built a swimming pool up on the top of that one, too, that they said was nine feet deep and it had a gazebo in the middle. And it was so far to the gazebo that you could only make it by boat. Everything he did was big. 
And he killed his sons in one of those family swimming pools. He had two other sons that he was suspicious were going to try to take over his kingdom. So this time, he lets them come in front of him and present their case why they shouldn't die. And they're like, Dad, we're not trying to steal the kingdom. We're not trying to do that. And historians have actually recorded their speeches. You can go and, and, and look them up and you can read them. Um, and they're begging for their lives. You think he believed them? No, he killed them. One time he had a dispute with all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. You know what he did with them? He killed them. Shortly before his death, this is it. You've got to understand his character or lack thereof. Shortly before his death, he ordered that the Hippodrome, one of his big stadiums, be filled with all the most influential Jewish leaders of the country. And his instructions were this. When I die, I want you to go in and massacre all of the Jews in there. He barricaded the doors, had them, had them trapped in there. And he said, so that, here's a quote, so that at my death, I will be guaranteed that there will be weeping and mourning. Class act. Now, Herod controlled the religious system, the political system, the economic systems. He was large and in charge and everything he did was huge. He liked the finest things, blinged them in his kingdom. Today, we don't think much of him, but back then he thought a whole lot of himself and into this situation, here it is. Here's the whole point. Into this situation, a baby is born in poverty to an oppressed people. And if you have your Bibles, you can look at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Now remember, Luke's, Luke's question was, who is Lord? Matthew's question is what? Who is King? All right, here we go. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, during the reign of King Herod. Does that make you understand a little bit more about Herod now? It's not just King Herod. Now you understand who the guy was. And that's what Matthew wanted you to understand. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone else in Jerusalem. Why was Herod disturbed? It wasn't like he was suspicious of anyone, was it? Not like he was paranoid that his kingdom was going to be taken over or anything. That's all the dude spent his time doing, worrying about who the next threat to his kingdom was going to be. And that's what happens whenever you build your life on earthly things. But Jesus came to build another kind of kingdom. Remember, we read that verse earlier. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. But he was still threatened by it. And why were all the people around him threatened? Because if you ever saw a picture of Jerusalem, there's no farmland inside Jerusalem. It's estimated that that Jews of that day were 80 to 90 percent of them worked in the farmland. But you had to give taxes. You had to pay the Caesar tax. You had to pay the Herod tax. You had to pay the temple tax. You had to pay the trade tax. You had to pay the economic tax. Everything, all these different kinds of taxes. It's estimated they paid 80 to 90 percent of their wages in taxes. Now, let's just say you're making two thousand dollars a month. Eighty to 90 percent. That's sixteen hundred to eighteen hundred dollars you're paying in taxes. How many of you could live on 200 bucks a month? Today, you couldn't live on that. That's the problem back then. They couldn't live either. And now, all of a sudden, you got some wise guys showing up saying, where is the real king? And if you're one of Herod's cronies and a real king is being born, that means your king is going down. That means your king's reign is about to end. And all Jerusalem was disturbed with Herod because this new king was messing up the system. And that's exactly why Jesus was born, was to mess up the system. Now, 
This was this was kind of a big deal, because if you remember last week, we talked about one of the ways they circulated um, the word of, of different things in the kingdom was they made coins. And this coin that, that they made on one side, you remember in 17 B.C., there was this comet that comes by and Caesar Augustus looks up and he says, oh, that must be my father, Caesar, going to be seated at the right hand of God, the father Zeus. If my father is going to be seated at the right hand of God, the father Zeus, that must make me the son of God. So on one side of the coin was this comet and Caesar going to hang out with Zeus. The other side of the coin was Caesar Augustus, and it was declaring that he was the son of God. And one of his big phrases was, my cosmic time has come because cosmic, you saw the comet go by. Now, who made up that story? Caesar. Who makes up the story of this star being shown in the east and coming and and sitting over where the Christ child lay? Complete strangers. uh, Caesar knows that he's lying. And then somebody shows up in Herod's place and goes, we've seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him who has been born king of the Jews. And all Jerusalem was disturbed about this because this baby threatens everything. Now, look at Matthew 2, 4 through 8. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So Herod was troubled and he wants to know, where is this Messiah going to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Now, look what Herod does. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him, too. Oh, really? Is that what you're planning to do, Herod? You're going to worship the baby Jesus. That's sweet. I I believe you. And one pastor said, you know, do you think his assistants stood around going, he's full of crap, he's full of crap, he's full of crap. Probably not because they would be killed. They might have written it down for later. You know, maybe we'll find that in archaeology. Will you be the judge? Is is Herod really telling the truth or not? Look at Matthew 2, 9. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So they come in, they see the child. By now, he's not in the manger anymore. This is a long time it's taken them to get there. They go into the house, they see him, and they offer him PlayStation 3 and Nintendo Wii and and Xbox and all of these things that they've waited all night for three or four days so that they can give him this great gift. Maybe not. But anyway... They offer these great gifts and then they're smart dudes and God warns them in a dream to go some other way. And when Herod hears about it, you remember how Herod responded? He discerned, he he got the time that that this baby was supposedly born and he goes to Bethlehem. And what does he do in Bethlehem? Murders every child two years old or younger because he wants to wipe out this threat to his kingdom. He didn't want to worship him, he wanted to kill him. So Matthew begins his Christmas story with Herod is king, and he's confronting the, the reader with this issue. Who is your king? Is Herod king? Is power and wealth king? Is possessions king or statues king? Surely all of these palaces, if you don't have a mountain, you can build a mountain. And by the way, when Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives, 
and, and he could look past Jerusalem. He could see this mountain that didn't used to be there that, that Herod had built. He could see this mountain. And it was this mountain that he points to with his followers. And he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. What's Jesus saying? This stuff Herod does is not going to last. My kingdom will last. Now, this baby shows up and messes up everything. Because not only is he not born in a palace, but his announce, the announcement of his birth was not to, to somebody in the palace. Who, who was he first announced to? Shepherds, are you kidding me? Shepherds smell. They stink. What are you going to go tell them for? They're the lowest of the lowest of the low. And Jesus did it on purpose because here's what he wanted you to know. God has appeared to ordinary people. And he wants to change their lives. He wants to make a difference with ordinary people. Max Licato says that outside of Bethlehem, there's this small cathedral that marks the supposed birthplace of, of Jesus. You can walk into the main part of the church. It's got this huge high um, altar and, and, and you, can, you can stand there and you can look at all of this great stuff that's been built. But he says there's a little cave out behind the altar and inside the cave it's lit by this little sil silver lamp. And you can go through the main entrance and admire all of the big stuff. But if you come through this little entrance to where Jesus, there's a star on the floor that marks the place that supposedly Jesus was born. He said, you can stand up in the big church. But if you're going to see where Jesus was born, you got to stoop down and kind of go through. And he said, the same thing is true of Jesus. You can see the world and the blingdom standing up. But if you want to see God's kingdom... You're only going to see that from your knees. You want to be a part of a kingdom that lasts forever? You want to be a part of a kingdom that is not about power and crushing people and killing people and murdering folks that are a threat to your, to your kingdom? You want to be a part of a kingdom that lasts forever that's full of, of forgiveness and grace and peace? The only way that you get to be a part of that kingdom is to hit your knees. Proud people don't see Jesus. Humble people do. And even the wise guys, what they do? It says they fell down and worshipped Him. And I believe that God opened their eyes to allow them to see just how powerful this little baby was going to be. Why don't you take